Hi everyone, welcome to our event with uh, Carter Sneed to discuss his new book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body and Public Bioethics. I'm so honored to be here tonight uh, with Carter and you can learn more about his career and his many accomplishments in the video description below. I'd also like to encourage you to purchase local and support the Catholic Information Center by picking up your copy of this book at our store. Um, you can either show up in person or you can give us a call and we'll get you set up. If you have any questions throughout the lecture, please use the YouTube chat box. Um, I'm gonna be monitoring this throughout the event and we'll be pulling questions from there to ask during our audience Q&A. And my name is Rosemary Eldridge. I'm the Director of Programs and Communications at the Catholic Information Center. And I'm so excited to be here with you this evening. So let's go ahead and get started. Without further ado, I give the screen to Carter Sneed. Hi, Rosemary and everyone. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this evening. Uh, it's such a, always a pleasure to visit the Catholic Information Center, even if it's virtually. Um, such a great fan. It's such a, it provides such an extraordinary resource for our nation's capital and our world, and everything they do is outstanding. A uh, huge uh, thank you to Father Charles Truyos and Mitch Bursma and Rosemary and everybody who made this possible. Um, you'll forgive me, I'm a little bit excited right now because my very dear friend, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, was just approved by the United States Senate to be Justice Amy Coney Barrett of the United States Supreme Court, which is an extraordinary moment for our country and our world and for the Blessed Mother's University where I work. So raising a glass of sparkling wine to my beloved Amy Barrett and, and our, all of our colleagues at Notre Dame and the United States of America. It's just an unbelievable moment. I, I, can't, I can't tell you how excited I am. This, she is an extraordinary person, extraordinary friend, an amazing jurist, a person of the highest integrity in our country who's gonna be really well served uh, by having her on the, on, the, on the bench for generations. Um, so thank you, uh, Rosemary, for this opportunity to talk about my new book. Uh, titled What It Means to Be Human, uh, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, uh, published by Harvard University Press just this past October 13th. And thank you all again for tuning in. My plan this evening is to give you a, a, an overview of what the book is about and um, the problems to which it's responding and the solution that it suggests uh, in our law. And I, I should say the title itself bears some um, bear some explanation. Public bioethics, which is the area in which I teach uh, and research and the area in which I work. And before joining the faculty at the University of Notre Dame, I, where I served as general counsel to President Bush's Council on Bioethics, uh, what we worked on is public bioethics. Public bioethics is defined as the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods. It is not merely an area of intellectual inquiry. It's an area of, of actual governance where the political branches of government, Congress, the White House, administrative agencies, all the state political branches, legislatures, governors, attorneys general, and such like, um, uh, wield the power of the law in the name of ethical goods as they seek to govern biotechnology, biomedical science, and the practice of medicine. And courts also are part of this process. The US Supreme Court, most prominently in the context of abortion, but also uh, the US courts are involved in a wide array of, of regulatory activities involving medicine, science, and, 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 uh, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods. So 
why don't I just give a brief overview of what the book is about, and uh, and then I'll move into, if we have time and there's interest, I'll move into a conversation uh, focusing my inquiry specifically on the question of abortion. Um, I take up three different paradigmatic cases in my book, the question of abortion, the question of a, assisted reproductive technology, and the question of end-of-life decision-making, including assisted suicide, and bring to bear what I think is a new mode of analysis and an avenue of critique for the of the current uh, iterations of American law in this domain, uh, and then pro and propose a, uh, a solution. We don't have time to get into all three areas, but if there's time, I'll I'll try to be more concrete in my discussion of abortion. But before that, let me just talk a little bit about the about the about the the book itself. So the book makes two claims essentially. It makes a, a procedural claim or a methodological claim, and it makes a substantive claim. Um, first, it argues that because all law and policy aim to protect and promote the flourishing of persons, the richest, deepest, and most explanatory mode of analysis of public bioethics is anthropological. Uh, and that's a word I use not in its modern academic disciplinary sense, but in its, in its uh, original sense as an account of what it means to be human and to flourish as a human being. And an anthropo anthropological analysis of American law, and especially the law of public bioethics, aims at illuminating and critiquing the vision of human identity and flourishing that undergirds and animates the legal doctrine, the public policy, and politics. It, it, and at Notre Dame Law School, we law professors like to teach our students on, on multiple levels. We first teach them the black letter doctrine. We say, here, what does the law say? What, how does it work? How does it apply? Uh, but then we ask our students to drill down a, 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 a level deeper still to the normative level of asking what goods the law aims to serve and what harms it seeks to avoid, what principles of justice, what principles of equality, what conceptions of freedom animate the law. But what this book does is it drills down a level further still into the normative crust to ask the question, what vision of the person and human flourishing is animating the doctrine at issue in these cases? Now, Catholic novelist Walker Percy famously said that everyone has an anthropology. There is no not having one. If a man says he does not, all he is saying is that his anthropology is implicit, a set of assumptions that he has not thought to call into question. It's impossible to do law, I argue, without an underlying operative premise of what a person is and what constitutes his or her flourishing. We build laws and public policy for the benefit of persons. So unless we know what a person is, all laws and policies will be at best arbitrary and capricious. They will not be just, wise, or humane. Thus, the task of anyone who wishes to enter deeply into the vexed public discussion on bioethics must aim ultimately to identify the vision of the person and human flourishing at the foundation of the laws under consideration. And as I said in this book, I aim to focus on the three vital conflicts of American public bioethics the law of abortion, the law of assisted reproduction, and the law of end-of-life decision-making, including assisted suicide. So that's the first claim. The first claim is methodological. How should we examine public bioethics? We should do so through an anthropological lens. That's the methodological point. Substantively, what I argue is, if you subject these three vital conflicts of American public bioethics to an anthropological inquiry, what comes to the surface is that the anthropology anchoring the core vital conflicts of American public bioethics 
reflects what Charles Taylor, Catholic philosopher, and others, Robert Bella, social scientist who wrote Habits of the Heart in the 1980s, what these thinkers have identified as expressive individualism. Now, this anthropology, this vision, takes the person to be a mere isolated and atomized individual will whose highest thriving consists in interrogating the interior of the self to find his own unique transgressive and authentic truths and to configure his destiny accordingly. Because this anthropology identifies the person with his will alone, it's what philosophers call dualistic. That is, it takes the mind to be the seat of personal identity and regards the body as a mere instrument to pursue those projects of the will. In fact, it even understands human relationships as transactional, aimed at pursuing the projects of the individual will. Relationships formed by agreements, promises, and consent for the mutual benefit of the parties involved. So in this framework, people thus encounter one another as either collaborative or also contending wills, pursuing their own individual goals. Claims of unchosen obligations and unearned privileges are unintelligible within this framework. In this paradigm, the goods of autonomy and self-determination enjoy the pride of place among ethical and legal principles. Law and government exist chiefly to create the conditions of freedom to pursue one's self-invented future, unmolested by others, and perhaps even unimpeded by natural limits. It's an anthropology that is expressive individualism is an anthropology that rejects what some philosophers call the teleological conception that natural givens or what we observe in the natural world uh, is a useful guide to interpreting the world of physical reality. And instead, expressive individualism embraces a more modern and instrumental vision of humankind's relationship to the natural world. And as I've already said, to the body itself. Now, I argue that when you, that this revelation, when you look at the laws of abortion, assisted reproduction, and end-of-life decision-making, and you discover that the vision of the person and human flourishing that undergirds those laws is expressive individualism, it's quite worrisome. And it's worrisome because, to take the uh, words of Alistair McIntyre, this regnant anthropology of American public bioethics is, quote, forgetful of the body. It's inadequate as a foundation for laws and policies that are responsive to the lived realities of vulnerability, mutual dependence, and natural limits that comprise the human context of this domain. Now, it's true, of course, that human beings exist as individuated, free, and particular selves. And there can be great value in the exploration of the vast interior of the self to discover and express the authentic and original meaning found there that can serve as a guide to one's future plans, and even as a transgressive witness against wrong-headed or repressive customs. But this is only a partial and incomplete picture of the fullness of lived human reality. The anthropology of expressive individualism alone cannot make sense of our fragility, our neediness, and our natural limits. It can't offer a coherent, internally consistent account of our obligations to vulnerable others, including children, born and unborn, the disabled, uh, and the elderly. In other words, the anthropology of expressive individualism doesn't take seriously our own lives as embodied beings. You and I experience ourselves, our world around us, and one another as living bodies. We, we come into the world as living bodies. 
and we understand ourselves through the lens of our living bodies. And an anthropology that ignores our bodies and this fundamental aspect of our identity is not going to be able to govern us in a wise way when it comes to public bioethics, which is principally about the vulnerability, mutual dependence, and natural limits of the human body. So what I propose as a general matter is what we need for the laws in these domains is what I call an anthropological corrective. That is, we need to remember the body. Whereas Alistair McIntyre observes that this particular vision of anthropology forgets the body, in order to get ourselves back on the right track, we have to remember the body. So to, um, uh, to that end, the book articulates and defends a more capacious account of human identity that not only embraces the truth and reality of human freedom and particularity, but also the vulnerability, mutual dependence, and finitude that result from our individual and shared lives as embodied beings. Building upon this richer anthropological account, the book argues, following Alistair McIntyre, that for both their basic survival, I should say our basic survival, and our flourishing, embodied vulnerable human beings depend on what he calls networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, constituted by other people who are willing to make the goods of others their own, regardless of what this might offer by way of recompense. And by first depending on these networks of giving and receiving, and then participating in them, individual human beings become the sort of people who can care for others in the same way. This transformation of persons from needy consumers of unconditional care and support to mature uncalculating caregivers for others, of course, sustains uh, or guarantees the sustainability of these essential networks. But more importantly, it also helps people to develop into what an embodied being should be, namely the kind of people who make the goods of others their own. Put most simply and directly, I argue in this book that by virtue of our embodiment, human beings are made for love and friendship. The cultivation of moral, uh, of memory and the moral imagination, I argue, are also a crucial means of understanding ourselves more fully and seeing the other to whom we owe obligations of care and protection. If we remember that we are embodied, we will better understand ourselves as whole living organisms rather than as mere wills inhabiting instrumental bodies. And that is remembering, remembering as reintegration of body and mind. If we remember that our embodiment renders us vulnerable and dependent upon the beneficence of others for our very lives and self-understanding, we will more clearly grasp our obligations of just generosity and reciprocal indebtedness to those others who are likewise vulnerable. In this sense, remembering constitutes a rebinding of ourselves to one another in the body of the community. And if we remember that as living human bodies, we all pass through stages of life when our will, our judgment, our strength, and even our beauty are inchoate, obscured, compromised, or annihilated, we'll be able to more readily recognize others as fellow members of the human community with claims on us despite the sometimes distressing disguises of age, illness, and disability. In this last sense, I mean remembering as an essential tool of recognition of the vulnerable other to whom we owe a duty of care. So um, in order to uh, augment our current landscape for public bioethics, I argue that the pathway to a richer, more human public bioethics 
requires not only acknowledging the limits and necessities of embodiment, but also embracing the great gifts and opportunities that only embodied human life affords. Thus, this book proposes a new array of goods, practices, and principles suitable for governing a polity of relational, needful, finite, and embodied persons. Drawing upon Alistair McIntyre's virtues of acknowledged dependence, these include the practices of just generosity, hospitality, misericordia, which is the accompaniment of others in their suffering, gratitude, humility, openness to the unbidden, tolerance of imperfection, solidarity, respect for human dignity, and honesty. In other words, what I'm arguing for here are the practices of authentic friendship. Now I take this framework, right, and this critique, and I apply it to the vital conflicts of American public bioethics. And I argue that the influence of expressive individualism can be seen in the law's solutions to the problems posed in these domains. For example, in response to the bodily, psychic, and financial burdens of unwanted pregnancy and parenthood, American abortion jurisprudence offers nothing more than a license to terminate the developing human life in utero. In response to the pains and desperation of infertility, the essentially unregulated American legal landscape offers nothing more than the freedom create, to create and select for a baby by almost any means possible. In the face of dependence on life-sustaining measures, the law offers incompetent patients the right to be left alone and the false promise of directing one's own care by remote control after cognitive abilities necessary for competence have been irretrievably lost. In the face of terminal illness, the law of assisted suicide merely offers a right to self-annihilation. These are the rights and privileges suited to atomized individual wills who inhabit a world of strife. Their limited weapons and tools of rational mastery fit for a lonely disembodied self to defend and pursue its interests. They are not well designed to address the complex needs and wants of a community of embodied, vulnerable, and interdependent human beings. To drill down a little bit further into the individual cases of abortion, ART, that is assisted reproductive technologies and end-of-life decision-making, uh, I'll do that briefly and then I'll, if there's time, I'll focus on the question of abortion more specifically. But the current law of abortion frames the public question as a zero-sum conflict between isolated strangers, one of whom is recognized as a person with the other deemed to be a sub-personal being whose moral and legal status is contingent upon the private judgment of others. It offers no comprehensive support for vulnerable persons involved, including especially the unborn child and her mother. The largely unregulated legal landscape of assisted reproductive technologies create a very particular form of procreative liberty that does not offer complementary protections for the broad array of uniquely vulnerable persons whose lives are touched by these procedures, including gamete donors, especially women who donate their eggs, gestational mothers, genetic mothers and fathers, and the children conceived with the aid of assisted reproductive technologies and practices. And then at the end of life, the law governing refusal or termination of life-sustaining measures for incompetent patients stubbornly clings to a vision of the patient as an atomized autonomous will as its animating premise when, it, when the embodied reality of such patients is precisely the opposite. 
Its default aspiration is to bind the now incompetent patient strictly and unreflectively to his prior preferences, rather than to promote decision-making by the patient's loved ones, who will consider both his prior wishes as well as the needs of the patient that he has now become. The law of assisted suicide similarly rests on the goods of autonomy and compassion, premised on a vision of the person reduced to desire and will, neglecting entirely the profound vulnerability, dependence, and concomitant risks, both to patients themselves and at-risk populations in the communities that have legalized this practice. Now, that, those are the defects, right? Those are the defects in the areas of law that I take a look at, abortion, assisted reproduction, and end-of-life decision-making. And they all rest on a false and impoverished vision of the human, human person as defined solely according to, the, to, to his or her wills or desires and defining their flourishing as uh, formulating future-directed plans and pursuing them uh, relentlessly and single-mindedly using their own bodies and the rest of the world as instruments to, to pursuing those projects of the will. And as a result, you, the, this anthropology and our law misses entirely the multiple vulnerable communities that are at risk in these particular domains. The unborn child, the mother of the unborn child, uh, person suffering from infertility, the child conceived with the aid of assisted reproductive technologies, the donors, even the physicians themselves involved. And then at the end of life, uh, of course, it leaves behind the vulnerable patient who, who is diminished by disease and perhaps pain and feeling like a burden and perhaps being pressured by family members, uh, it leaves those individuals behind and then systemically leaves behind vulnerable populations, the elderly, the disabled, those who are parts of discrete and insular minorities who are at risk for those jurisdictions that legalize assisted suicide. So what I propose then is to reframe these issues, to, to, to reconceptualize them with an appropriately robust anthropology, which gives credence to everything that we are, not just wills to power, but rather embodied souls who are situated in relationship to others with chosen and unchosen obligations who move in histories that, as Michael Sandel says, we neither summon nor command. And so I argue that viewed through the lens of the anthropology of embodiment, all living members of the human family are worthy of care and protection, regardless of their age, their disability, their cognitive capacity, their dependence, and most of all, regardless of the opinions of others. Everyone, I argue, can participate in the networks of giving and receiving, even if only as a passive recipient of unconditional love and concern. In the anthropo what I call the anthropology of embodiment, there are no pre and post personal human beings, uh, there are only human beings. For such a community, the anthropology at the core of these vital conflicts of public bioethics must be augmented to correspond to the lived reality of embodiment. The issues and laws, again, have to be reframed, as I said moments ago. Reframing abortion uh, as a conflict involving a mother and her child, thus summoning the support and care of the network in which both are embedded, including the father, the extended family, the community, and the polity, including the government, opens up channels of care, concern, and support and constitute a summons uh, for the uncalculated giving that everyone owes to the mother and her child before, during, and after the child's birth. Resituated through the lens of anthropology of embodiment, the matter becomes a case of the proposed use of lethal force involving a mother and her innocent child. Similarly, public questions of, uh, of assisted, reproductive, assisted reproductive technology must 
be reframed within the anthropology of embodiment and the normative category of parenthood. The network of uncalculated giving and receiving par excellence, embracing all of the participants, including genetic parents, gestational mother, rearing parents, and child-to-be at all stages of development from conception through birth. Every one of these individual vulnerable people are entitled to protection, support, and care of the networks in which they're situated. The fundamental aspiration of the law should be that every child conceived by assisted reproductive technology should find her way to a home with parents who will welcome her as a gift to be loved unconditionally. This ultimate purpose should animate every decision by all involved as people uh, seek medical care in their quest to become parents. And in the book, I leave my conclusions at this level of abstraction, the purposes of the law. But if we are to reframe the purpose of the law of assisted reproductive technology, which is to, to culminate in the birth of a child who is welcomed and loved unconditionally, that's gonna have concrete entailments for what we can and can't do from the very, even before such a child is conceived. Uh, as for the public bioethics at the end of life, the anthropology undergirding the law must on, be honest in embracing the reality of embodiment in time with the vulnerability and dependence that follows from that. Accordingly, the law should adopt measures designed to protect against abuse, abandonment, fraud, and mistake while facilitating care for the patient in his current state rather than as he was or as we might wish him to be. The law should encourage and offer care not open a pathway to suicide by transforming the healing art of medicine into a handmaiden of death. In all of these vital areas, the role of the law should be to help create, support, and protect the networks of giving and receiving on which we all depend in our vulnerability as embodied beings in time. It should encourage the goods, virtues, and practices that sustain these networks. The law must encourage the cultivation of the moral imagination allowing persons to see others to whom they owe a duty of care and from whom they can make a plea for support. And where such networks fail or are altogether absent, the law must intervene to protect the vulnerable from exploitation and harm, and even from the temptation to harm others or even to harm ourselves in the pursuit of our desires and interests. So that is the very broad outline um, of, the, uh, of the book itself. And so what I'm going to do now, and again, that's a pretty high level of abstraction. What I'm going to do now is to take, a, take some time to, to focus on the question of abortion specifically, to give you a sense of how I analyze the question of abortion, both from my critique, my anthropological critique, as well as the proposed uh, solution at the high degree of abstraction that I take in the book, uh, to give you a sense of how this works. And the similar, I take a similar approach to assisted reproduction and end-of-life decision-making. So, um, again, very, I mean, this is probably going to be the quickest I ever summarized 50, almost 50 years of abortion jurisprudence, but I begin this chapter on abortion by summarizing the law uh, of abortion and discussing uh, and then analyzing that law from an anthropological perspective with the added analysis of the philosophical arguments that seem to undergird Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and the other relevant precedents. Abortion in America is uh, entirely, abortion law in America, I should say, is almost entirely a creature of um, Supreme Court precedent. And the law can be summarized in the following way. Uh, prior to viability, the state may not unduly burden a woman's right to abortion 
uh, it can impose ancillary side constraints, but may not uh, prevent a woman from making the ultimate decision to uh, terminate her pregnancy in the life of her unborn child prior to viability. After viability, and this, this law, this all comes from Planned Parenthood versus Casey from 1992. After viability, um, uh, the state may restrict abortion, but it always, at all stages of gestation, always has to have an exception for the life of the mother, which all laws even pre-Roe had, uh, life of the mother, but also for the health of the mother, which in a case called Doe v. Bolton in 1973, decided the same day as Roe v. Wade, held that the word health in this context refers to any aspect of a woman's well-being, not just physical, not just psychological, but also familial and economic well-being as determined by the abortion provider himself. And so what that means is Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey basically declare a right to abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy for any reason that's connected to a woman's well-being, most broadly understood, interpreted by the abortion provider himself. And it makes us one of the most extreme uh, legal regimes on abortion in the whole world. I mean, socialist countries in Northern Europe are more restrictive than we are on the question of abortion uh, for this reason. And so the court gets to that conclusion in Roe and Casey by focusing relentlessly on the mother through the lens of uh, expressive individualism, sees her as an atomized individual will who is seeking to pursue her own pathway in the forward and seeks to, um, and views the burdens of the unwanted pregnancy and, and not just unwanted pregnancy, but unwanted parenthood after the child is born as, a, as an alien intrusion into her hopes and dreams and plans for the future. And so it, it casts abortion as a zero sum conflict between a woman who is recognized as a person and an unborn child who is not recognized as a person and denies the state the right to recognize the ch unborn child as a person and privileges the mother exclusively as the originator of all meaning with respect to who and who is not a person uh, uh, in, in her womb. So given these suppositions about what it means to be a person, it's not surprising that the court discovered a constitutional right to self-determination under the variable and shifting auspices of privacy in 1973 in Roe, to liberty in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and now to equality, most clearly represented by um, Justice Ginsburg's dissent in Gonzalez versus Carr. Under these variable goods, the court discovered a right to exercise self-help in the form of abortion so as to overcome the burdens and obstacles of pursuing one's chosen destiny, whether they be imposed by others, the state, or perhaps even nature itself. And it's also not surprising that viewing human identity through the lens of expressive individualism as it does, the court excludes from the community of legal persons, those living organisms not yet capable of actively discerning, inventing, and pursuing the projects that are essential to self-definition. To be clear, this is not just a matter of the court's narrow interpretation of the word person in the 14th Amendment, but results from its categorical prohibition on the state from extending the protection of any form of legal personhood to prenatal life in the context of abortion. The court explicitly empowers private citizens to judge for themselves the moral status of the unborn without interference from the state, which is to say that the court implicitly judges the human being in utero to be something far less than a legal person for reasons that it never explains.
Finally, the anthropological assumptions of the court obscure from view the networks of relationships in which the parties are embedded, relationships of family, including but not limited to the maternal fetal biological kinship, community and polity that could and should be responsive to the basic human needs that arise from unwanted or unplanned pregnancy. Accordingly, the narrow right the court identifies as crucial to human flourishing is simply the entitlement to terminate the unwanted pregnancy and the life of the prenatal being in utero. There is a brute logic to the recognition of this right, given the court's background assumptions about the nature of human life humanly lived. In a world of atomized wills locked in conflict with one another and other subpersonal beings, the right of private force is essential to preserving the fundamental right to express one's identity and to pursue one's chosen destiny. And the right is particularly weighty when balanced against the interests of what the court declares to be non-persons. Viewed in this light, the court's rendering of the constitutional right to abortion is best understood as the liberty to protect and vindicate the most important goods at the heart of expressive individualism. It's the liberty to define for oneself the meaning of procreation and prenatal life without interference or imposition from the state, and the freedom to act on this choice by terminating a pregnancy prior to viability as a matter of right, and even after viability in the name of a wide array of additional goods relating to well-being, including familial health, by operation of Doe v. Bolton's health exception. The right to abortion thus conceived is not simply about responding in justice and compassion to the bodily and psychic burdens imposed on women by unwanted pregnancy, but rather in the court's words, to protect the freedom to quote, organize intimate relationships and make choices that define women's views of themselves and their places in society. Now, I believe it's true that persons are free, particular and individuated beings. And that interrogating and then expressing the truths discovered in one's inner depths can be a fruitful and dynamic source of meaning. Indeed, such expression can be a crucial catalyst for promoting justice and resistance to conventional but repressive ideologies. And it's true that freedom of conscience is important to human flourishing, and that many, perhaps most, important questions are rightly left to private judgment and private ordering. Each person is, in deep and important ways, associated with his or her will, judgment, rationality, in cognition. What's more, women deserve to be free and equal to men in the eyes of the law and should not be held hostage to discredited patriarchal conceptions of social roles imposed by the state or anyone else for that matter. They should be free, as the Supreme Court has written, to shape their own destinies in accordance with their self-understanding and their spiritual imperatives as they understand them. They should be free and uncoerced in matters of procreation and parenthood. The problem for American abortion law is that this is not the whole truth about human beings, and these are not the only goods at stake or evils to be avoided in this most vexed and bitterly contested realm of public bioethics. What is missing? A serious consideration of embodiment and its meaning and consequences. This forgetfulness of the body distorts and stunts the court's understanding of the full human dimensions at issue. Specifically, the court is blind to the reality of the vulnerability, dependence, and natural limits that necessarily attend any problem or conflict involving embodied beings. Because the court fails to consider embodiment as an indispensable aspect of human reality, it misses goods, practices, and virtues that are essential to the thriving of individual and shared lives of beings who live, die, and encounter themselves and one another as bodies. Most gravely, the court fails to consider the networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving that are necessary for the survival of embodied beings as well as vital to their development into the kind of people who can sustain such life-giving networks of relationships. 
The virtues and practices essential to building and maintaining these networks, as I've said earlier, are generosity, hospitality, misericordia, gratitude, humility, openness to the unbidden, solidarity, dignity, and honesty. These help us to learn how to make the good of others our own, that is to be a friend in the truest sense. Alongside the development of these virtues and practices, we have to cultivate our moral imaginations, as I said before. But the Supreme Court jurisprudence of abortion is blind to all of this because the law it constructs is not true to lived reality, which depends on unearned privileges and unchosen obligations and is populated by vulnerable, dependent, and disabled human beings with claims on our care and concern by virtue of their relation to us and not our consent. Therefore, the court's prescriptive framework is gravely misguided and indeed inhuman. The primary relationship that's invisible to expressive individualism, and by extension, the court's abortion jurisprudence, is that of parents and children. Focusing as it does on the atomized individual will, seeking to express and live out its internally discovered truths in an authentic way, expressive individualism cannot make sense of the connection between parent and child. Parent and child are instead conceived as competitors over scarce resources necessary to pursue their own individual interests. This is precisely how the court frames the conflict of abortion, a clash of strangers, each seeking its own advantage. Indeed, this is how it understands human pregnancy itself. But this description of procreation, pregnancy, and parenthood does not do justice to the lived embodied human reality of these experiences. Analogies to disputes with trespassers to property, bodily invasions by parasites or being kidnapped and conscripted into supporting an unconscious violinist, which are all the metaphors, by the way, of the pro-abortion rights philosophical literature, are not apt. Psychologist and feminist Sidney Callahan puts it this way. The abortion dilemma is caused by the fact that 266 days following a conception in one body, another body will emerge. One's own body no longer exists as a single unit, but is engendering another organism's life. This dynamic passage from conception to birth is genetically ordered and universally found in the human species. Pregnancy is not like the growth of cancer or infestation by a biological parasite. It's the way that every human being enters the world. It's not simply that the womb is the locus of gestation, growth, and birth of every human being, but in every case in which a woman seeks an abortion, the relationship, I argue, involved is biologically speaking that of mother and child. They are not strangers. But the court's reasoning, limited by the anthropology of expressive individualism, misses this relationship, and in so doing, the opportunity to reflect on the fact that the parental relationship is not the transactional domain of consent, but is the pristine case of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. It's the singular experience that takes one outside of him or herself and transform, transforms him or her from an I into a we. A child does not and need not earn the privilege of her parents' care. The parent does not contract to take on such obligations. Being a parent means being responsible for the neediness of one who is utterly dependent and vulnerable, regardless of what one might receive in return. A parent takes on this duty by virtue of an embodied biological relationship. Human beings begin their lives in utero already embedded in the relationship of children to parents. Now, of course, biological parents may discharge their obligations by making an adoption plan facilitating the construction of a new family, a genuine place of belonging for the child in need with real and new bonds of parenthood. In adoption, as Gil Mylander has written, love and shared history transcend biological kinship and create a genuine family for all involved. 
But despite the fact that the life in utero is a distinct human organism of the species Homo sapiens, genetically related to the woman seeking an abortion in precisely the same way that all children and parents are related, the maternal child relationship is invisible to the court's reasoning. The court following the rubrics of expressive individualism turns away from the embodied gibbons of, of human procreation and treats the unborn human being as an isolated individual. But perhaps because the fetus, that is the unborn child, cannot yet actively participate in the behaviors that expressive individualism recognizes as proper to persons, higher cognition, self-awareness, reflection, and the expression of desires, she, the unborn child, is relegated to the domain of legal non-persons, where her status is to be determined by those who are capable of these actions. Thus, by virtue of its embrace of expressive individualism, the court is not able to take full account of the biological relationship of mother and child, nor can it even offer a description of the individual life in utero that corresponds to lived embodied reality. The relationship is that of strangers, and the fetus, the fetus, is a mere abstraction. Similarly, the discussion of the burdens of unwanted or unplanned pregnancy and parenthood are incomplete. Of course, these burdens are real and can be crushing. In some cases, pregnancy can pose grave threats to a woman's health or even life. Unchosen parenthood can create overwhelming stresses and burdens, both economic and emotional. But because the court atomizes the woman as an individual, it abstracts from the meaningful context of parenthood and isolates her in her suffering, abandoning her, abandoning her to struggle alone as a disembodied self in a world of contending wills, lacking any unchosen obligations or duties of care that might be owed to her by her family, her community, her state, or her nation. Because it's rooted in expressive individualism, the American jurisprudence of abortion cannot respond fully to a pregnant woman's dependence and vulnerability as it ignores key avenues of aid and support to which she is entitled as a member of the human community. Because of its explicit embrace of expressive individualism, the court likewise misses the fact that parents and children together are embedded in a wider network of others who, by virtue of their relationship as extended family members, neighbors, fellow citizens, and polity members, owe them obligations of just generosity, hospitality, misericordia, solidarity, honesty, and respect for their intrinsic and equal dignity. Parents and children both depend on these networks and through their participation in them, become the kind of people who can contribute to their continued sustainability, namely the sort of people who are able to make the goods of others their own. But the court conceives of pregnancy and parenthood as a clash of strangers. Thus, the court's chosen anthropology transforms medicine into a tool that is wielded to eliminate unwanted burdens and the beings whose lives are burdensome in an act of self-self-defense. In fact, by emphasizing the sole authority of women to seek abortion in the name of securing her future on an equal footing, the court lends support to a man who chooses to abandon preg a pregnant woman in need, since she alone decides whether or not to carry the baby to term. And in doing so, the court embraces an anthropology that weakens the ties between parents and children by ignoring the biological and genetic relationship of mother and father and prenatal child. It further weakens the ties of extended family, neighbors, fellow citizens, and government to the pregnant woman because it isolates her in her suffering and vulnerability and ignores the obligations of everyone to come to the aid of women and their families in crisis. Through the frame of expressive individualism, by ignoring the embodiment and the goods, virtues, and practices necessary to responding to its challenges, the court is left with only one option to respond, the freedom to use force to terminate the prenatal life that constitutes a threat to the individual woman's future. 
Now, the Supreme Court in Roe and Casey erred by grounding the law of abortion in an impoverished anthropology that conceals the essential reality of the very human context it seeks to govern and thus prevents the law from responding to the full range of human needs at issue. Now, whether constructed by the Supreme Court under the auspices of a maximally unbounded theory of substantive due process and the Constitution, or established through more conventional procedures by state legislatures of the US Congress, what would a legal framework for abortion that remembers the body look like? Given the intricacies and complexities of making and administering law and public policy in a federalist regime as large and diverse as the United States, it's only possible here to outline some broad concepts. But as it will become clear momentarily, even framed at a high level of abstraction, the principles for the law and policy of abortion rooted in an anthropology of human embodiment do not fit neatly within the left-right or Republican-Democrat paradigm of modern-day America. To start, we must remember that the law exists to protect and promote the flourishing of persons by regulating conduct, but also to teach and shape the public's understanding of the demands of justice, freedom, and equality. A legal and political regime that takes embodiment seriously would be especially mindful of its concrete human entailments, namely vulnerability, dependence, and natural limits. Taking account of the virtues of acknowledged dependence necessary for the survival and flourishing of embodied beings, law and public policy would promote the construction and strengthening of these networks. It would also encourage and reward the virtues and practices that are necessary for sustaining these networks as well. Law and public policy animated by an anthropology of embodiment would seek to strengthen familial and social ties that serve these ends, including institutions of civil society that help to combat a purely inward looking and individualistic perspective and encourage a sense of belonging. Finally, the law would serve to cultivate the moral imagination, helping persons to see more clearly those other members of the community to whom they owe duties of care and of whom they can make claims of assistance for themselves and their families. Where incentives and inducements fall short and people find themselves without the support and security of the networks of giving and receiving essential to life as humanly lived, the law must step in directly to offer protection and render aid. This could, of course, entail a very robust goal for government. In the context of abortion, an approach to governance grounded in an anthropology of embodiment looks very different from the regime established by the court in Roe, Casey, and their judicial progeny. First, the framing of the issue would not be styled as a, under current law as a clash of atomized interests, a woman's interest in defining for herself the meaning of procreation, prenatal life, and avoiding the uh, physical and psychic burdens of unwanted pregnancy and parenthood, and pursuing her chosen future on an equal footing with men versus the state's interest in potential life. That's how it's currently framed. Rather, it would build from the biological reality of pregnancy and parenthood from which several principles and points of decision would follow. But first, why parenthood? Because an anthropology of embodiment takes seriously the process by which human beings come to be, how they survive and thrive and the web of relationships in which they are embedded as they come into the world. The Supreme Court implicitly followed the philosophers who support abortion rights by drawing a bright line distinguishing biological genetic humanity living members of the human species, homo sapiens, from the narrower classification of persons. But whereas these philosophers drew the line at the acquisition of certain cognitive capacities connected to self-understanding and expression, the Supreme Court drew the line at birth as the moment that the state may extend the full legal protections of personhood to a new human life. 
A legal approach to the question of abortion grounded in anthropology of embodiment would be very skeptical of a framework for the legal protection of human beings that either depends on the acquisition of capacities or waxes and wanes based on conditions and degrees of dependence or the interests of others, even those of the human subject's parents. The anthropology of embodiment as set forth above regards frailty, weakness, dependence, and vulnerability, and even disability as part and parcel of the human condition. It does not privilege privilege the capacities of cognition and will when defining the boundaries of the moral and legal community. It does not reward the powerful with greater legal protection and withhold the benefits of the law from the weak because of their weakness. As a matter of basic embryology, the life of the human organism begins with fertilization from which emerges a distinct self-directing genetically unique embryo, which moves, if all goes well, along a species-specific trajectory of development from fetus to newborn to adolescent to adult and so forth. From the beginning, the new human being is, of course, radically dependent upon her mother to nurture and bear her in the womb. Um, but unlike expressive individualism, which dictates the criteria for personhood uh, as being those, those capacities that enable self-reflection expression in the pursuit of one's destiny according to the endogenous truths of the inner self. An anthropology of embodiment regard any living member of the species Homo sapiens as entitled to the respect owed to persons regardless of her location in utero, in utero or ex utero, age, size, state of dependence, active capacities for cognition or desire, circumstances, and perhaps most of all, regardless of the opinions of others. In an anthropology of embodiment, being human is the only criterion for membership in the community of persons. Um, similarly, an uh, anthropology of embodiment would reject the Supreme Court's rule that in American abortion law, the definition of fetal personhood must remain relative and subjective to be determined by every pregnant woman for herself without the imposition of the state. In this view, all human beings are persons and must be recognized as such by the law. But more importantly, the anthropology of embodiment doesn't just recognize the unborn child as a person it recognizes the unborn child as the child of the woman seeking an abortion. And this of course means that the woman seeking the abortion is not a stranger to the fetus. She is her mother. The relationship as understood through the anthropology of embodiment is one of parenthood, the most fundamental network of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving essential to life as humanly lived. And therefore the question of abortion would be reframed as a matter involving a mother and her child, and more specifically, a matter in which it, a, a mother is seeking to impose lethal violence on her, on her child. And we'd reframe the law and think it through in, in that way. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap up now because this has been going on, you know, I've been, I've been sort of getting into detail and into the weeds, but what I think it's gonna show here is that this is how the anthropological analysis that I undertake in this book takes place both in the context of abortion assisted reproduction and end of life decision-making. It reframes the question, reframing the individuals involved, not merely as individuals, but as situated in their relationship to one another, and then seeks to apply the law and understand what, what, might, what it might mean. And once you resituate the mother and the unborn child as mother and child in the context of abortion, not only does it focus our attention on what exactly is being proposed, but it also focuses our attention on what remedies might be available summoning the networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving that are available, who are called upon, if they are to be fully human, to come to the aid of this mother and this child and to support them uh, in, their moment, in their moment of need. Um, so again, I think what you can think of this book 
and I don't mention this in the book, but if you think about it through the lens of Mother Teresa, who said, um, if we have no peace, it mean, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to each other. And I try to make the case in this book that by virtue of our embodiment and what it means, we belong to each other. And we have to remember that we belong to each other in order to reframe all of these perennial public bioethical conflicts and to see them through the lens of embodiment, to see who our neighbor, not just our neighbor, but our children, our parents are, and to act accordingly. So thank you very much for your time and attention. I hope you enjoy the book. And thanks again to Rosemary and the CIC for, for inviting me. Thank you, Carter. Um, your uh, lectures never cease to amaze um, or enlighten me. Um, I have the book here. Again, I'd like to encourage everyone to pick up your copy at the Catholic Information Center. Uh, I've only just started it, but I'm even looking forward to it more uh, to dive, dive deeply into it. Um, we have time for a few questions. Um, so I think it's uh, a few of the questions kind of have a, a general theme. Um, I think it's safe to say or to assume that you are talking to an audience that is uh, supportive or at least sympathetic to the premises that you outline in this book. But what would be your, you know, two minute elevator pitch to someone who might not be a natural ally to these premises to get them to read this book? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that thank you for the question. And the book at the beginning of the book, the book anticipates an audience of, of skeptical readers. That is. I appreciate and I love the support and involvement of those who are predisposed to, to hear what I'm saying because we are all Catholics, because we all see the human person through the lens of our church that is made in the image likeness of God. And we have the obligation to love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, and so for a person who has those inclinations, I think this book is going to be, um, it's going to reaffirm those views and it's maybe going to resituate those arguments in an interesting way. For those who don't share our perspective, the book is really offered as a kind of a proposal, and I say this in the book, offered in friendship, to consider in light of our lived experience. I try to take not principles, one of the first principles of my faith as the grounds for the arguments I'm making, but I try to begin with something we can all agree about, namely that we are bodies, right? We are bodies, and if we reflect on our embodiment and its meaning, we see that it is inexorably true that we're mutually dependent on one another, we're vulnerable, and we're subject to natural limits. And once you realize that, then the question becomes what kind of virtues and practices are necessary for the flourishing of embodied beings? And that's where I focus on McIntyre, the networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, all the virtues and practices that go along with it. And from those premises, which I think are shared premises, I try to make the case that the law of abortion, assisted reproduction and end of life decision-making are fundamentally inhuman because they fail to see the lived reality of our embodiment. Great. Um, a couple of the other questions too um, are a little bit themed. So I'm kind of grouping some of these questions together also for the sake of time. Um, you know, in today's current political climate, you know, it can be very daunting to talk to somebody who has a different political belief, um, especially when it comes to such a sensitive topic of abortion or in, uh, an end of life issue. Um, but for those who are, are daunted at the thought of, you know, taking um, at a practical level, you know, you talk about how this is, you know, up a lever, up a, an upper level uh, look. Um, what can they do to apply this on a more local level? Yeah, no, thank you for that question also. I, I think the whole key, I mean, we're in a rough spot right now with our country. People are at each other's throats. They are suspicious of each other. They're bitter. They're angry. Social media amplifies that in a way that is extremely ugly and disheartening and 
and upsetting. I really do think the arguments in the book aren't just, I don't mean them to be just arguments. I mean them to be genuine appeals to who we are and what our flourishing is. And fundamentally at bottom, what it means for us to be embodied beings is that we have to live in love and friendship. We have to genuinely love one another. We have to not think about our role as convincing someone of a series of propositions, but our first, second and third priority is to genuinely love the person that is in front of us. Whether we, whether we agree with them or not, whether we think they're mean or not, whether they're abusive to us or not in a verbal way saying that, you know, we're papists or, you know, whatever we, Handmaid's Tale, whatever, you know, whatever the case may be to say, to really say, look, to genuinely and selfless, selflessly give ourselves over in love to that under, other individual. And I think through the prophetic witness of radical love, we will be able to transform people's ideas. I mean, not, not in an instrumental way, but I, I just, I have to believe, and I keep thinking about Mother Teresa and her witness. It, it, didn't, it didn't make sense what she was doing from the perspective of the modern sensibility. Why would a person of her background from Albania go to Calcutta and to, to take the most lowly and despised members of that society and hold them while they died, right? Because they were Christ to her. And she had to, 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 to love, it was very funny. Someone said uh, to Mother Teresa, they said, um, they said, you couldn't pay a million dollars to do what you're doing. She said, yeah, me neither. <laughs> she said, I wouldn't be doing it for a million dollars. There's no amount of money I would take to do this because this is not, I'm not doing this for money. I'm doing it for the, for the sake of the radical love of the other. And I really do believe that if we do that, if we really, and, and we can't think about what effects it's gonna have. We can't think about it in an instrumental way. We just have to be committed to radically loving the other. And I, and I do believe that with, that'll have a transformative effect on people. It won't make sense to them. They don't understand why is this person who's supposed to be my mortal blood enemy on questions of you know, public bioethics, why are they extending themselves in a self-sacrificing outpouring of love for me? And I really think it's the right thing to do is what we're supposed to do. And I think everything else will take care of itself if we do that. Oh, I love that. Final question, what is your personal goal like, what was your personal goal when you wrote this book? Like, what do you want to see come yeah. from its publication? Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to, so I wanted to, um, first of all, I wanted to, I mean, I spent, I've spent a lot of years on these questions, like on these questions of bio, both working for the government and as a teacher and a scholar. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to capture in one place the sort of the, the overarching theme, which I think explains what public bioethics is about, which is to say it's about the frailty, finitude, and natural limits and mutual dependence and vulnerability of, of, of lives as embodied beings. Um, when my wife, Lee, read the first draft of the manuscript, she made the joke. She said, it's, it reads like Alistair McIntyre and Leon Cass had a baby, which raises <laughs> itself an interesting bioethical question. Um, but, but the... Um, but the uh, but she's right. Basically, it's a kind of I mean, Leon Cass is the most extraordinary humanist, Aristotelian, who is a man of science, man of humanities that reflects on what it means to be a body, what it means to be a body in time, what it means to have children that come in the room in the middle of your lecture like that just now. Um, and uh, and uh, and then Alistair has this is also a beautiful Thomist and Aristotelian and and with with a history of other, you know, other, other ideologies that he's explored in, in his past. And, and he focuses in a relentless way on dependence and vulnerability. And I just want this to be a book that people, anybody can read. You don't have to be a scientist or a philosopher or a law professor to read this book 
and recognize in it the truths about our shared lives together and maybe to have the opportunity to think about what this might mean for what I regard as the most important and perennial human rights questions of the time of our day, which are abortion, end of life, and uh, ART. Well, there you go. Um, if you're not convinced uh, by now to read this book, then I don't think you are listening. <laughs> um, thank you again, Carter, so much. And I'd also like to to lend my congratulations to your to your friend and colleague on her confirmation. Um, I'm, I'm personally very excited about that, um, and and hope that the dogma lives loudly within me and, and all that it does. I do. <laughs> it does. All right. <laughs> again. Go ahead. No, God bless you and your audience and everybody at the CIC. Thank you so much for your generosity and giving me this opportunity to talk about the book.